Are you ready for this one? For every minute that you're angry, you're wasting 60 seconds of happiness. You want to hear it again? Ew, no. (laughs) Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. Go Vols. Or whatever. I'm Dr. Sarah, <laughs> I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sessin Nagash at San Diego State University. Today, Sessin will bring us a discussion on blended families, starting with Demi Moore and Bruce Willis. I'm very excited about that. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Rehumanizing the Self After Victimization, the Role of Forgiveness versus Revenge. And then in good or bad advice, we will be talking about some advice once again our old friend, social medias. If you have any advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at Attached Podcast, or go straight to our website, straight to the source, attachedpodcast.com, and send us a message. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, uh, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, the website, um, rate and review it, and smash that subscribe button. But before we get to all of this loveliness today, what have you guys been up to? Tell me stories. Can't wait to hear. Catch me up. What's so? We are taking a little vacation coming up. <gasps> uh, we are going to Disney World for what? a few days. I know we're really excited about it. Um, it's not like we have gone very regularly in my lifetime or my child's. Uh, and also it feels like a thing that I missed out on the last few years, like while she's young, uh, to be taking her to these kind of places that are, you know, especially special, I think when you're little. Um, so we're going to do that for a few days, crossing our fingers that the, uh, COVID rates hold. Um, and part of what I've been doing to prepare has been researching, uh, Researching is too intensive a word. Um, I guess like Googling, just like looking. <laughs> Conducting uh, uh, <laughs> randomized control trials. That's so. right. <laughs> of this thing called Disney bounding. Have you all heard of that? No. Okay. Go so on. So Disney bounding is this phenomenon that I understand has been going on for a few years per my research. And um, it's when people dress in... Um, like regular outfits that replicate or sort of emulate the color schemes of specific characters. So rather than like dressing in a costume, they'll create like an outfit that you might normally sort of wear out and about, but they'll do it sort of in the color scheme and style of a specific character. Oh, very cool. So what does the term bounding mean then? Oh, good question. Maybe it's a Tigger reference. I don't know. Oh, I I think like they're bound for Disney Disney? and so they're Disney bounding. Yeah, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) It's a Tigger reference. That's good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And also like a lot. 
cheaper than buying so the that's costumes. exactly why i was researching it a hundred percent and also because i'm not towing an eight-year-old around disney world who's going to understandably get so uncomfortable in like a princess yeah. gown that's not my game like theme parks are theme parks we're there to move and see things <laughs> hustle that's hustle right. hustle go 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 that's right <laughs> So if we're going to do that, it's not going to be like shedding glitter as we walk, right? So <laughs> it's um, much more cost effective because, you know, you have those like colors of your yeah. clothes just uh, on hand. So, so far, <laughs> I debuted them yesterday to mixed reception. <laughs> Tell us. What, I, did they, um, what did the family think? So Snow White went over big. Blue oh, shirt, good. yellow shorts, like Cute. red hair bow shirt. Oh my gosh, that is adorable. I, yes, Mary Poppins went over okay, to be fair. White and red? Yes, that's right. White shirt, red shorts, white and red bow, penguin necklace. Yeah, whole. That's adorable. Uh, And then Wally fell real flat. Was it gray? It was yellow (laughs) shorts, striped shirt. And then I found this like $4 little Wally bow on Etsy. Anyways, that one fell flat. So we have a little bit more work to do before we go. I was um, thinking you were talking about up. your husband, Wally. And I was like, yeah, I could see where that just like. <laughs> so this yeah, is not a family yeah, thing. Not everyone does it. It's just <laughs> So I suggested it. And then I, <laughs> I, my husband was like, not so into it. Um, and also, <laughs> uh, I decided I didn't want to be tied down that much either. Like, I just want to wear clothes that are going to like fit and feel comfortable. Sure. For sure. I love it. That's amazing. Disney amazing. bounding? Is that what we're calling it? Dis- Disney bounding. You have to look it up. The creativity of people is just incredible. Oh, always. Yeah. It's incredible. I'm always surprised just by like what people can think of and how fast it can spread. And 100%. Oh, yep. Fun. Sesson, how's life for uh, you and the big SD? I know they call it that. <laughs> I call it the expensive SD. Yeah, you're right. So I have friends. I grew up in Georgia. This is obviously a side note. Uh, Valdosta, Georgia is, you guys are familiar because it's one of the biggest cities in the southern part of Georgia, as they call it, the southern part of Georgia. Anyway, I had a lot of friends from Valdosta and they always called it the VD. And I was like, you guys know that stands for something else, right? No. And they're like, what? And I'm like, venereal disease? No, nothing. We're just going to stick with VD. All right. Well, have fun, Valdosta. <laughs> Their tiny little airport. I am familiar, actually. <laughs> yeah, I used to drive by it to try to get to Atlanta. To try to get out of Tallahassee. <laughs> I was making my great escape for the weekends. Oh, yes. Familiar. Um, Yeah, SD is a very commonly used phrase. That's uh, good. Yeah, you know, I always feel like when I tell people I'm from San Diego, I don't know why. Maybe it's the child in me who, where nobody knew who Eritrea was, but I'm always like explaining where it is on a map. Like, yeah, it's probably not oh necessary. <laughs> it's a big enough city in the United yeah, States. That's yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, old habits die hard. What am I up to? So I think one of the things I'm most excited and very nervous about <gasps> is um, the idea of us getting a dog. Um, it's maybe time. I've gone my whole life without one and no Dre's really interested. And so we are a bit of a tidy household, like we're lots of white furniture. Everything is very 
modern and clean. We've yeah. been really unsure like it would be a good fit for us in terms yeah. of our like upkeep. But you know, there's dogs out there that of course can I think um, fit for us. Like right now, the poodle is really of interest, and in particularly like the mini poodles, the mini yeah. and the toy poodles. So. we're exploring and I'm contacting people asking questions and hoping I don't ask the silly questions because I'm not a dog owner and don't know like the language that maybe (laughs) I should be using but I am hopeful we will maybe um land on something soon we have a a really nice backyard for it but we also have like animals that might be really interested in our dog too so we have coyotes (laughs) we have big hawks oh you see, because San Diego is in the southern part of California, and the animals that they have in that region, yeah, very right. specific. And people think of like a lot of like water and beach, but like we live in the suburb uh, where there was like a little bit of like a mountain range and trails, so we have some animals, like larger animals here, and yeah. So we want to make sure we get a big enough animal so that we don't experience the trauma of it being you know oh. swept away. Because it's oh. happened to neighbors and, you know, we hear stories, yeah. so we're just like... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I remember that scene in um, The Proposal with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds when they're in Alaska and uh, the little... It's a comedy scene, obviously, but horrific, where the little dog gets taken away by an eagle and it has her phone? I don't remember. No, she throws her phone at it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, uh, good luck on your dog getting yeah. adventures. Um, we exciting. don't do dogs in our household for all of the reasons that you listed. Um, but I'm very excited to hear how it works for you. Thanks. Um, I, I'll report back. Thank you. Thank you, indeed. Um, we just went on our own little tiny we adventure to Dollywood. Dollywood. Oh, my gosh. It was so much fun. That little theme park, what Dolly Parton has done with it, unbelievable. Like, it's just the cutest little place. It's actually quite large. I shouldn't say little. Um, And it's clean and it's lovely. And, like, every once in a while, depending on which part of the theme park you're in, you'll hear, like, Dolly Parton's little voice singing over the loudspeaker over songs. It's so amazing. And they have, like, you know, like at Disney, they'll have, like – individual performers you know as you're walking along so they do that at dollywood too but it's like a fiddle player or like a mandolin player playing like uh you know it's just so cool and lovely and it's not all like appalachian themed like there's also like a 50s like kind of uh diner area theme park it's just so adorable so cute they have lots of wonderful little kitty rides we weren't going to take the baby, but we ended up doing it, and, like, he was completely fine. He rode the carousel with us, so all five of us got on the carousel Aww. and rode it. So much fun. Um, what we didn't do this time, but we have done in the past and I want to do next time, is she, on the park, they have, like, a real working steam train engine uh, that they refurbished, and... It goes around the whole entire park, so you can see the whole entire thing. But there's only one of them, so it's like once an hour if you can get on it, you can do it on. But it's awesome, too, because throughout the park, they'll do the little whistle, the steam whistle. So you'll hear a like a real steam whistle. It's, so And you can see the smoke puffing up, or I guess it's steam, not smoke, puffing up. It's just such a lovely – if you're ever in the – 
southeastern region of the country. Y'all just come to Dollywood. You'll love it so much. It's just so precious. It's fantastic. Anyway, absolutely loved it. Got our season tickets. We'll be going again shortly. Nice. There you go. They got you. I mean, it's only an hour away from us. It's such an easy trip. So I agree. Oh, I've heard good things. I've only heard good things about Dollywood ever. I don't even know that I know that many. And it's uh, in your mind, it's like, oh, it's going to be some like little podunk thing. And you go there and everything is really well done. Everything is really clean. It's fantastic. My memory of going to Six Flags in Atlanta is that it was like kind of grimy, like always. Yeah. I mean, it's fun and stuff, but it's not like that. It's like more of a Disney level clean, which is nice. Disney is always super clean. So. Anyway, shout out to Dollywood. I love you, Dolly Parton. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships actually comes from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we'd like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sasson, what you got for us? Yeah, so recently I came across an article about um, the blended family dynamics of actress uh, Demi Moore and mm-hmm. uh, actor Bruce Willis. And it really sort of uh, made me very curious because you don't read a lot about, um, at least in social media, about like how successful blended families can be. And so the two have been divorced for more than like 20 years and shared wow. three children. I know, I know that feels... I don't know why it feels like a long time, but but the couple have really demonstrated how blended families can work. I mean, over the years, I've seen like pictures here and there about um, where they all have their families like spending time together, you know, when she was previously married to um, the actor Ashton Kutcher Mm -hmm. um, and how he and Bruce Willis were friends and, you know, all these ways they've demonstrated that they've made it work. And so... I read something last week and thought, wow, this is, um, I've seen this before, but it also really just somehow feels like special that they're able to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. We define blended families as a family that includes a stepchild, but also maybe a child born into both parents. And um, it used to be that blended families came together because um, you know, um, in the previous relationship, maybe a parent would pass away and then someone would remarry or cohabitate or typically is remarry. And now most blended families stem from a divorce, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it used to be, again, rare. And um, right now, almost like 4 million families um, where there's a child living in a household where they're defined as like a blended family where there's a step parent's um, involved in where they're living with um, step siblings and biological siblings. Um, and so I thought we could talk maybe a little bit about that because it is um, a dynamic that is fairly tricky to navigate. Um, bringing yeah. two families together under one roof, while it may seem like, you know, if, you know, it could work, it could not, I think there's a lot of intentionality that goes into. Um, making them work and the research demonstrates that you do have to be really thoughtful about the process and of course for some families it's going to be harder than others just based on existing dynamics between uh, within the previous relationship sort of how the children are introduced to the idea and to this new partner and these other children but even the most prepared families again have growing pains um, and will likely have to sort of navigate some tricky waters at times so 
Couples also might initially find it's an easy transition and then find at some point that it changes, right? Um, developmentally, there's different things coming up for the children and within the relationship dynamics could also be shifting. And so there's always sort of a new renegotiation of like boundaries and the relationships that exist. Um, but I think especially important to start maybe for us, maybe in this conversation to talk about is just what it takes for the parents on their end in terms of what they need to be thinking about. Because of course, the goal is to help the children adjust and to find their way together. But um, a lot of it, I think, starts with just how open and understanding the parents are of those in the previous relationship with each other and accepting and open they are to the new dynamics. So when I think about Demi Moore and um, Bruce Willis, I'm thinking they've come to some understandings in their relationship um, that really influence how they're all able to come together as a blended family, including his current wife and the children and the children they have together. So yeah, I guess my question to you all is like, how do you prepare to make that transition? Um, It can take two to five years is, you know, what the research Mm -hmm. says in terms of like time to adjust. Of course, within that time, lots can happen. And um, sometimes there's, again, not a lot that happens until sort of maybe further into the relationship. But um, sort of what are the secrets to a highly successful blended family? And like, what are we thinking in terms of where we need to start as the adults, right? I think one good place to start is educating yourself. There are a lot of um, step-parent education type classes. I know Cooperative Extension in a lot of states around the country offer these kind of free or low-cost courses that you can take about learning new communication styles or how what to expect type of things and just getting everybody on the same page in terms of that. Of course, that also means that there has to be a willingness of all parties to work towards this one goal of having a, a functioning uh, blended family um, situation, which can be challenging. And I know that um, based on uh, tabloids, of course, uh, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore lived really close together, like their homes were very close together. So I think that was another thing that they committed to like living near each other so the kids could easily access both parents and communication is also a lot easier when you live near each other and dropping off kids is not one of the issues that you deal with. Of course, that's not plausible for a lot of people to buy homes that are so close together. But I think education and being mindful and taking that step and that purposeful step of on the group, the whole entire group getting education, I think is really, really important. Yeah. You know, something that struck me that I was reading about is this idea of just like how initially a couple doesn't always set the expectations for themselves about just how different a step Mm -hmm. family like a blended family is um compared to a biological like they sort of try to go through the same motions and it's like no there's a whole sort of different set of experiences that are had and therefore there's different ways you could be preparing like this idea that sort of we should just naturally fit together and like really letting sort of things just, you know, being not really deciding like how exactly we can set our kids up here, set ourselves up to be really um, successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was really an important sort of 
realization that I had too when reading about this, thinking like, gosh, we really do, I think, like the hope, right? It stems from like this idea, like I hope we can all come together and be a family. But um, the effort in preparing for that, I think as a result sort of gets lost in that hope and not realizing like, these aren't sort of just like for many of us like, well, it should be natural, right? We've come together as a couple right. naturally. Like this is the person I really needed to be with. And so my children should be really understanding of that and be happy for me because if I'm happy, they'll be happy. Yeah, because kids definitely always have that rational thought. Um, <laughs> I mean, adults don't either, yeah. by the way. I agree with you. That idea that we're going to come together and automatically vibe. Um, because if you think about um, like a biological family where a child is born or adopted into that family, you have typically time, years, maybe even like three or four years until the kid starts to talk to like develop a pattern of interaction and that builds over time and you adapt. But if two families come together and you have some teenagers and some kids in elementary school expecting that cohesion to be automatic when usually that cohesion takes years and years to build and function as the child is developing. It also just doesn't make sense when you think of it in that context as well. And not fair to yourself either. Yeah. Well, I think in alignment with what you're saying, Susan, about the expectations, um, that cohesion is really important to be patient in terms of how you're developing and also um, focusing on flexibility and adapting through all of this change because there's a lot of change for every family member involved. Um, but along with those expectations, um, there's not a whole lot of um, social norms or guidelines around how to blend a family and then how to step into that co-parenting role, um, whether you are sharing children uh, together or you're moving in as a step parent. And so being really explicit about boundaries, not just the cohesion part, but, um, in tandem with cohesion, what those boundaries are going to look like and what you each expect that they look like. Cause I think in being really explicit about talking about those expectations and talking about what norms you want to create for the family you're blending, uh, where you realize that you have different expectations for your roles and responsibilities and how you're going to behave towards each other's exes and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can find the places ahead of time that are going to take work to negotiate and to transition. Uh, and so I agree with you. I think finding the places where there's ambiguity and differences of expectation is really, really important up front. And um, sometimes people can do that on their own. And also being part of family therapy can be helpful to negotiate that and to do that as a blended family um, with each of those parents together to, if possible, as much as possible. Um, it's not always possible, but it can be really helpful. Absolutely. And that's kind of within the one household, right? But also thinking that the child oh, yeah. is likely to be yeah, yeah. going between two households. So in addition to talking about the boundaries and expectation, all of those things, is letting the child know that and having conversations around it. There are probably going to be different boundaries and expectations at, between the two places you're going, right? And having conversations about why that might be and also that it's okay. And for the parents to remember that children are resilient and flexible. Like if they know that they're two different sets of rules, then they're fine with that, right? Like, and you just have to adhere to the two different sets of rules. People, I, in my own experience, when I was doing divorce counseling, kind of freak out that there are two different sets of rules and mm -hmm. that kids can't handle that. 
but they can definitely handle it. There's a different set of rules at school than there are at the house, right? At school, they have to ask permission to go potty. At my house, they don't, right? Like kids are used to like negotiating different sets of rules. They know it. Just giving them the heads up that this is what it's going to be, they'll be, well... There might be some resistance, but like kids can handle that. They do it throughout their entire life. And we do it too as adults. Yeah. And the way we as adults manage the resistance, because it's like in believing yeah. and understanding that it will show up and just knowing how to yeah. lean into it, because it's all the reactivity that happens in the process of trying to adjust yep. that I think can exacerbate the dynamics within the family. So just having them going in with like a healthier set of expectations yeah. how there might be things coming up along the way and how natural and normal that is and how to mm -hmm. really create like you all said like this openness and flexibility to the adjustment process um and also thinking we haven't even discussed and maybe for another conversation but like some of the cultural dynamics involved too and how within some communities the idea of blending families is just really unfamiliar yeah. and really even more challenging because there are all these, you know, cultural expectations about bringing in new members into an existing family already and how that can make the transition even more difficult it's a really and good scary point. for children because not only in societally, like there's more and more blended families, but there's when you have these set of cultural norms and expectations also influencing the process and how your one parent is adjusting to this idea of your other parent moving on, it adds a whole level of, you know, concern, fear, and um, things that these young folks have to really negotiate and navigate through. So blended families are tough, but they are also they really are. beautiful and can be really successful, but they require a lot of intentionality. Um, and, you know, everybody has to be ready to put in that work, especially mm -hmm. the adults. Yeah, especially I think primarily the adults. I would agree with that and not try and uh, offload some of that uh, labor onto children, which sometimes happens, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment. In our last episode, but previously on Attached, we talked about new research on whether people share the same kind of celebration for our successes if those successes are achieved immorally. But what if you're on the receiving end of immoral behavior? Is it better to forgive or seek revenge? In this episode, we are going to do a deep dive into a new research article by Dr. Karina Schumann at the University of Pittsburgh, whose research explores apologizing and forgiveness. Her newest journal of personality and social psychology paper, uh, written with Dr. Gregory Walton at Stanford, is titled Rehumanizing the Self After Victimization, The Roles of Forgiveness Versus Revenge. And it explores how victims of everyday, quote, indignities can restore their humanness after being made to feel unworthy of kindness. Large-scale victimization through racism, genocide, for example, is dehumanizing, denying people's basic rights and identity. But so too can common indignities affect our sense of being human including everyday experiences like being embarrassed, criticized, disrespected, excluded, or ignored. When we experience these types of negative treatments, we can feel less than, small, stepped on, ashamed, uh, invisible even. 
An important question is how can we resolve our sense of self after feeling devalued? Although we know that apologizing to victims can be powerful in repairing relationships and restoring humanness, can we restore our own humanness through how we respond to our own victimization? What feels better, forgiveness or revenge? Sarah, uh, I'm not sure whether to hope you're going to say forgiveness or revenge. Revenge does kind of feel good in the moment, but forgiveness right? seems like it's a better, like altruistic overall thing. So I'm very curious what this research does, um, sure. especially because my temperament, I do lean towards uh, <laughs> instinctually revenge, which is not healthy. I'm aware. Uh, I'm trying to work through it over the past 40 years at least, uh, but go okay. on. We're going to have plenty of time, plenty of more time. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. <laughs> I do think, I mean, it is an important decision, right? So forgiveness um, involves this transformative pro-social process where we are intentionally releasing negativity toward the person that's treated us poorly. It's often considered morally superior, as you yeah. just alluded to, Patricia. Um, and there is some prior research to suggest that it can help to repair a relationship, which we know we've talked about before on Attached. It can also improve our well-being. Um, whereas revenge or harming someone, hurting someone for causing us suffering uh, could potentially prevent more victimization, help us feel like we've gotten control over the person, gotten yeah. some um, dominance in the relationship. That's uh, a good reframe. <laughs> I believe the authors get credit for that reframe. Oh. Uh, it's a good reframe. It allows me to justify my revenge. Go on. That's right. Oh, well, it also could have negative effects on our mental health oh. or escalate oh. conflict. Oh, oh, yes, right. It has Fair. lots of yeah. different things. Um so these authors hypothesize that people who forgive will feel more rehumanized, especially because it may be consistent with our moral values. Uh, whereas victims who take revenge may feel rehumanized if they perceive the act of revenge promotes justice. But in general, their hypothesis was that that revenge piece is a little bit more complicated and potentially less moral, less virtuous of a route, and so could um, feel less like it restores our sense of being human. So they did this across four studies. Four. I'm not going to describe all of them. I actually think there was five. What? I'm saying four. There's like a supplementary study as well somewhere These in there. Um, remarkable yeah, scholars. Oh my goodness. I know. It's amazing. Could you imagine holding on to all those studies and then releasing them in one paper? Oh my gosh. that's why they're doing so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I should do more of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's for a different episode. <laughs> oh, I'll just forgive myself <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> This is not oh a podcast about critiquing our own research. Uh, That's right. It's about celebrating others. Yay. Um, yay. I'm so happy for them. <laughs> I don't at all want to avenge my CV. Um, so across these four studies, they used a few different approaches. So they had participants recall a real offense that they'd experienced mm -hmm. that they'd responded to with forgiveness versus revenge. They were assigned to recall an event where they had been offended or embarrassed, et cetera, and one that they forgived or other people were assigned to um, remember one where they had avenged. Uh, and people who were assigned to recall that offense that they forgave 
uh, that was associated with substantial improved self-humanity. They felt more open-minded, emotional, responsive. They also used hypothetical offenses and imagining um, either forgiving or taking revenge. And also they used uh, a study where they enacted forgiving or avenging, like in the moment they imagined a real offense and then they wrote a letter that was either assigned to be forgiving or vengeful. And they tested whether forgiveness versus revenge restored that sense of humanness. So we're going to talk about study three specifically because I think it's really interesting and helps to highlight what they're looking at here. They had found in some of their earlier research that the highest proportion of recalled offenses included a lack of respect or dignity from coworkers. So they focused a lot on oh. how this looks in coworker work colleague relationships. Yeah. Um which I it's true um so randomly they divided research participants which in this study was 292 undergrads into two groups uh one imagined themselves in a neutral interaction with a colleague and the other imagined being offended by a coworker and either taking uh, a forgiving approach or taking a revenge approach which i guess that's more accurate to say is three groups um but they imagined in this um, neutral situation that the person and their coworker have worked, for example, at the same company for a year. They have the same job title. They're considered equals. Um, they've been working on building a positive professional relationship. And then they're told to imagine that they give a presentation in front of their entire division. It goes well. And on their way out of the office at the end of the day, they run into that coworker who says, have a good night. Bet it's a nice feeling to have that off your plate so you can enjoy the beautiful weather this weekend. Or people assigned to imagine an offense. It was described more that they struggled to build a positive relationship. The person was a little aloof. Um, And they know that they've had like work colleague get togethers that they've not been invited to. And when they leave the building after the presentation, the coworker says, I bet you're headed to the bar to drink that one off because that presentation was brutal. (laughs) Hard to watch, actually. No worries. Sure, you'll do better next time. And then it says they wink, they smirk, and they walk away. So those assigned to the forgiveness situation were told to imagine that soon after they decide to have a get-together at their house for colleagues, they're deciding who to invite, and they decide to forgive their coworker and invite them to the party versus people that um, were assigned to the revenge condition. In the end, they decide to get back at their coworker by not inviting them to the party. Uh, and the control condition just said, you're thinking about who to invite, and you decide to invite your coworker. So it's neither about forgiveness or revenge. So what they found were participants who were assigned to the revenge condition. Yeah. They did not invite the coworker. They stayed in a dehumanized state. So they rated oh. themselves as feeling less refined, less intelligent, more superficial, oh. more cold oh. compared to the control condition. Whereas people who were assigned to the forgiving situation yeah. felt just as human as participants who imagined no offense had happened at all. Wow. Which is a pretty powerful effect. They found some pretty powerful effect sizes in these studies. Really? Um, And I read the scenario, which I abbreviated for the description here, and I myself felt offended, and I was not even a participant. (laughs) So if you can imagine the forgiveness piece uh, and achieve that sort of relief uh, or sort of restoring your sense of self, that's a pretty interesting 
uh, results from a pretty simple manipulation, right? A pretty simple scenario. Um, and so across studies, they found that people who forgave felt like they acted in line with their moral values, which helped them to feel rehumanized, whereas revenge was less rehumanizing than forgiveness because they adhered less to their moral values. Um, I think there are some really interesting takeaways here. I think these studies are limited by the samples that they use. They use um, mTurk responses online that, you know, participants that are not um, engaging necessarily in the lab. Undergrads, um, they were randomized to forgive or take revenge, which is a little bit different than maybe our natural sort of instincts. But these are both very universal responses to when we've been hurt. And then I think it would be really interesting to see how this plays out in formed dyads rather than just sort of imagining or recalling an offense, looking at what this looks like in relationships. But I do think it's really interesting how they've tested this idea that forgiveness can transform us. It can give us our agency back by releasing negativity towards people that hurt us and help restore our sense of humanness. Um, they found that forgiveness helped these participants feel a stronger sense of belonging to other humans, this sort of global community. They decreased the likelihood of self-harm. They used this voodoo doll to represent themselves oh, yeah. and how they wanted to hurt themselves after the conditions. Forgiveness was wow. tied to, yeah, less likelihood of harming themselves that way. Um, and I think Uh, points to some meaningful benefits for how we treat others, but also how we treat ourselves. Um, And so Mm. I think it can be very challenging to think about. Maybe it could be helpful to forgive, for example, a coworker. Um, (laughs) But if we're not exactly sure how to do that, right, we can um, potentially start by thinking about whether we have a full understanding of why somebody acted the way they did. Um, also thinking about whether there's ways that we can empathize with them. Um, and also I think it's important to evaluate whether the relationship is worth investing in. Yeah. Because if not, then I think we want to be careful about how much energy we spend there, but it might still be beneficial to release some of that anger and resentment towards someone. I was waiting for the condition where they were... (laughs) going to say you forgave them, but you still didn't invite them to the party. Yeah. I would like the blended response of, <clears throat> yeah, you me still too. don't get to come to my house. Uh, I can empathize and think maybe there's other reasons you acted that way, but you still don't get to come to yeah. my party, right? That's exactly what I was thinking too, is it, amazing research. It yeah. is making me think that my uh, knee-jerk reaction to always uh, act in a vengeful way, which while you were reading, by the way, this just is a peer into my dark soul. Uh, when you were reading the revenge scenario, I was like, oh, that's not revenge. Uh, but anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. but um, You're just protecting yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. good advice. That's good advice. I, know. I, was, I, I thought that. So yeah. <laughs> okay, interesting. Even hey, that is my not fellow there. dark humans, I now belong to this small community of very dark people. Um. <laughs> uh, But it doesn't capture kind of what you're talking about, Sarah, that what about repeat offenders? And I think it's important that forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you um, have to uh, move your boundary in a way to include them to be able to impact you emotionally, psychologically again, right? So you can forgive somebody, but that's for yourself. But that doesn't mean you have to give them the opportunity to injure you again. So I think that's always a really challenging 
uh, hard thing to do to pair those two together to forgive someone, but also maintain that boundary. It's so hard. Um, But the importance of forgiveness obviously is um, uh, they demonstrate here and something I'm going to have to convince myself of. Well, if it benefits you, it's really just a gift to yourself. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, I do think it's really important, too, that um, and the authors don't suggest this at all. But forgiveness is not the same as excusing behavior, Mm. So, especially for people who've hurt us, you know, repeatedly or whose behavior maybe we can empathize with, but their behavior is not changing or they're not invested in changing how they treat us. Uh, It's not the same thing as excusing behavior to understand potentially where that behavior stems from or why they might be acting that way. I can understand that, release some of my anger and frustration, resentment, and also still act in ways that protect myself or set boundaries and not make excuses for them and continue to engage in the same way in the relationship that keeps opening me up to be hurt over and over the same way. It's not the same thing. Yes, you're right. It's not. And we need to do a little mantra about that. Um, I just need to have that sound bite in my ear all the time, Sarah. So thank you for telling that, I'm sure, directly to me. That's right. <laughs> well, I think what it, you know, and for someone like yourself, uh, Patricia, who knows, you know, the forgiveness literature and who we all are familiar right, with the right. benefits of it, the fact that we still struggle in our own experiences, I think, to do that really suggests how complex it is. Um, yeah. you know, it's multifaceted, this idea of forgiveness. And I think people just throw it out there, like, forgive, right? Forgive, move on. And yeah. it's like, no, it's layered. It's rich in our own histories. You know, there's so much involved with this idea of forgiveness. Our brain, our trauma histories, all of the things that I think um, – sometimes make it difficult for us also inform the fact that like we have a history here that might be informing that resistance. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, really leaning into that as opposed to saying, I've got to figure out how to forgive, right? Like being really understanding of the fact that for me, at least I, I, and from my understanding of the work, it's, there's a function that it serves sometimes not to forgive, right? There's some level of protection that it's offering you some. And so I think at least as a therapist, when I work with a client who really has a hard time with that idea and especially, um, someone who's really resistant to it, I really am very curious about it, right? I really yeah. realize it takes more than just putting the idea out there. Yeah. It involves like It's emotion-based. Yeah. yeah. And there's a power differential there too, right? A lot of these studies are imagined scenarios with a coworker on equal status, but a lot of times it involves a power differential where I think that's an important component of it's possible part of what forgiveness does is restore the sense of power and agency you have over your own sense of self and remove some of the power that somebody in that position of dominance or control or abuse over you has taken, right? And so I think um, a lot of what you're talking about, Susan, is really, really powerful work. You have to understand what the emotion behind that is telling you. Yeah. And I think it also reflects like when we're talking to people, we have to think about like, understanding that larger context too and yeah. when we're having yeah, yeah. we're pushing that idea yeah. especially if they're part of systems that have been oppressive and 100%. victimizing historically and are still in those systems right and asking them yeah. to potentially lay down something that has sometimes given them some yeah. layer of protection yeah as always we've given uh dr schumann and uh her team <laughs> 50 more uh, studies that we would love to see. To be fair, uh, she's probably already done them based on this track record. <laughs> Amazing. 
So we cannot wait to read them. Yes. I love it. So cool. Cannot wait to read them when they are in print. Woohoo! Boo! Finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, friends, and family. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social medias, blogs, and those numerous top 10 lists. But this could come as a surprise to you guys. But a lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it. Very kindly, please rate and review the podcast and uh, gently smash that uh, subscribe button. And as always, share it with your loved ones. People love, love, love new podcasts. So my recommendation is when you are with coworkers in a meeting, the next time you're in a meeting, write attached podcast on a piece of paper, fold it up and just slip it to them like it's a little piece of gossip. And then they'll open it and be like, what? And I'm like, you're welcome. Love it. Peace. I'm glad I could at least make two of you guys laugh today. Today, we're going to stick with social media and discuss some advice that has been surfing the world wide webs. Um, the wild, wild west of the world wide webs. <laughs> You're welcome. First, we're going to uh, pop over to Instagram, the grams of the Instas, um, and talk about a quote that I saw from, believe it or not, at quotes daily, X9. So I don't know if they've had to set up nine different accounts and what that X9 <laughs> is about, or maybe there are nine different people. Um, but we're really excited to see what they said. The most attractive thing to me is effort. Someone who really wants to talk to me, wants to see me, wants to make me a part of their day. Good or bad advice? The most attractive thing is effort. What? I would say good advice. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think part of what they're describing here, I mean, I think this could vary for people, but I think um, the second half of what you read in terms of somebody who really is interested demonstrates mm -hmm. like interest in their partner and wants to um, spend time with them and makes them feel seen and valued those are really core attributes like foundational behaviors and quality relationships so i don't know about like specifically the attraction piece but i would agree that's really good advice about how to show up to a relationship yeah. and help that relationship be successful so good advice from woods sesson I agreed. I think it is good advice. I think, um, you know, for those of us doing couples therapy out there, there's a lot of um, <clears throat> effort to try to get couples to see each other and just to show up for each other. And like they often talk about just the effort to turn towards them. Um, yeah. That means so much. And a lot of the time when there is broken trust, it's not always about infidelity. It's not about like these particular acts or events, but it's about like, 
can I trust you to like turn to me and see me and care about what I care about and about who I am? So I think it is something that people really need in a relationship to support the health of the relationship, but also to act as a buffer when there are days too where you are just two people just sort of passing in the night, like where there's just not a lot of that time and energy. Just to know, right, you have a foundational sense that that person sees me, they care about me, they do turn towards me, maybe not all the time, but when it counts and when it matters. Um, Yeah, so I think that is good advice. I think, can someone do that every day? Probably, I don't know if that part of it is possible, but I think as an overall practice in a relationship, it's important to the health of the relationship. So good advice all around. And remember that showing up also doesn't have to be big, huge mammoth uh, uh, demonstrations of love. It can be really, really tiny things as well. How was your day? Types of things as well. Um, staying on Instagram, one of my favorite accounts at rainydaybox.com, um, way back in season one, uh, one of the founders and my friend, uh, Kate was actually on our show. A bit of background, uh, rainy day boxes, a company helps people cope with their grief after a loss and really, um, gives advice to people about how to help friends and loved ones grieve. So it's kind of an account Uh, built around educating people about how to show up for people who are grieving Um, and also helping people who are actually grieving too as well. But anyway, check out their um, account. Um, But here is the quote that they posted by Mary Van Hout. Um, You will survive and you will find purpose in the chaos. Moving on doesn't mean letting go. So this is, of course, in the context of grieving and losing a loved one. You will survive and you will find purpose in the chaos. Moving on doesn't mean letting go. Good or bad advice? Oh, I think it's beautiful advice. I think I'm a really big fan of this company as someone who's received a box and given a box. Um, And they're a fantastic Instagram account to follow. They have the best advice about how to respond to grief and how to experience grief. And um, I'm thinking about this a lot in the context of research on like ambiguous loss, that we can both have healing um, and uh, move towards healing and wholeness and wellness while also not forgetting and um, carrying that relationship with us and remembering uh, the power of that connection. Um, and still honoring for a lot of people who are left living while they've lost somebody, um, also honoring the really hard work that sometimes went into caregiving or um, uh, watching somebody care about die. Um, I think it's really important to honor that work that our family members do too. Um, So I think that's beautiful advice. Good advice. In fact, beautiful advice from Woods. Sesson? I agree. I I don't know that I have a lot to add to that, except to say that I think, um, you know, it is something that people carry with them is this idea that, and especially early on, like, if I'm not thinking about you constantly, if I'm not mourning you, if I'm not just in that memory of you, then somehow, um, you know, that I've let it go, right? Or I've somehow just moved on when it's really like, about how do you hold that love and that care and that memory just in a way that's just different and allows for you to hold it at the same time, sort of trying to stay 
present and connected to your current life and you know it's hard and it takes so much time to get to that space understandably first and just being really um appreciative of the idea and also honoring how hard it can be um I think also that idea of purpose in the chaos, I think that's the one piece that I'm like, oh gosh, that one feels hard. (laughs) Um, How do you find purpose sometimes when you're just surviving, right? Like it's just, it doesn't always feel like you can always find like that piece that makes it make sense or helps you just really feel motivated. Purpose is a big idea. It's a big sense Mm -hmm. to have. And so um, when you're really suffering or in pain and mourning and living in that chaos I think it can be really hard to think about the purpose piece and so just being mindful of how how hard that is really to do certainly uh hard um man but um it sounds like we all agree really good advice next in a extremely rare jump to Facebook. Um, We have, and to be honest, this one um, did (laughs) take me a couple of reads. Um, People don't fake being abusive. People fake being kind. Remember that. I'll do it again. People don't fake being abusive. They fake being kind. Remember that. And all of the comments under it were like, thank you so much. I needed this. And so when I read it, I had to read it so many times because I was like, what am I not getting? Um, So I read it again and then again this morning. And I think I finally got it to make sense. But I'm curious what you guys think. People don't fake being abusive. They fake being kind. Remember that. And also, I am just might be very, very slow. I'm sure you guys got it immediately. Um, Woods? It reminds me of that saying, and I apologize, I don't remember who said it, but that phrase, maybe Maya Angelou, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first yeah. time. And so if they're... Um, that sinks into my brain a lot faster, but yeah. Easier, okay. yes. Um, and so if they're showing you who they really are in terms of, um, I mean, abusive is a really intense word. Of course, I'm immediately thinking about our academic deep dive and that Mm. people can hurt us and that also not be a permanent character flaw that that happens in relationships all the time Uh, partners can be disrespectful to each other and also have otherwise a healthy relationship because that's like you know a one-time thing or an occasional thing not like a permanent part of your relationship but abusive feels like a different word and so i think if my angel is going to say it i feel like it's good advice um so i'm more concerned about the second half of that advice about um people can fake kindness because i feel like it's promoting like second guessing um and not trusting people um so i think that this version of this advice is not the best especially because it's taking me a little bit to process also um if i can't easily digest it then uh it's not good for me at least (laughs) it doesn't help me (laughs) and that's what this podcast is all about i love that so we're saying the first yeah the first half good (laughs) advice uh because it echoes maya angelou for sure which is something she says the second half maybe a little bit harder because it kind of is suggesting distrusting people when they're being kind. Uh, Sesson, what are your thoughts? Um, so yeah, I think the idea that, um, I, for me, the first half really promotes or suggests that it's, it, there are folks who engage in abusive behavior 
who then sometimes will make excuses for that behavior or um, act like that, you know, try to cover up that behavior by saying, you know, it was about this and it was about this and it wasn't. So I agree, like we have to sort of really trust ourselves to know when something doesn't feel right and feel good and lean into that. And the other half of that, that latter piece, I think really, um, I don't know if I find that to be helpful advice or good advice necessarily because I think someone who is abusive has the ability to demonstrate kindness as well. So I think it's not enough for one to have to or should be enough for someone to make excuses for the abuse. But I think to suggest that one can only demonstrate one way of being is also not consistent with how people show up. And, you know, we show up as human beings, I think. Um, yeah. The difficult thing is people lean on the kind moments to sort of justify and stay. Yes. That's what I was going to bring that up. Talk a little bit more about that cycle. Yeah. Just that idea that, well, they provide for me in this way, in these moments. So they lean on the memories and the experiences that they have within the relationship that do feel good, that do bring comfort and try to minimize as a result, like the things that are hurtful or harmful in the relationship. And that is oftentimes why people stay in abusive relationships for a really significant amount of time. One of the reasons, right? Um, Of course, there's others. But I think we have to recognize that both are possible. You can be abusive and you can also demonstrate kindness. And it doesn't mean because both exist that one should also put up with that and should deal with that, right? Or continue to stay. Um, But I do think like to ignore what are acts of kindness or pretend that they're not happening doesn't also make sense to me. I think you can say, I appreciate the kindness, but because of this other piece, I can't do this, right? Um, And really look at it more for what it is, which is a really complicated human being that maybe you just aren't a good fit for, right? Like that's the thing. We're all capable of kindness and causing harm. Um, And, you know, I think it's about looking at really understanding that Abuse in particular, like we said, it's a big word. So acts of abuse are not to be minimized because of acts of kindness. Yep. So we're saying uh, good advice, the caveat of maybe don't necessarily love the idea of um, the fake being kind kind of might promote people to um, mistrust people's kindness, but also the idea that these two things can happen in the same person. Um, But just because they're true acts of kindness doesn't mean we should stay with that person either, whoever that person may be, coworker, friend, lover. Lover. So last but certainly not least, or maybe it is least, I don't know. You guys tell me. Um, You guys are going to be surprised by this. But we're going to do the ticks and the talks. Are you ready for this one? For every minute that you're angry, you're wasting 60 seconds of happiness. You want to hear it again? Ew, no. <laughs> Good or bad advice? You said I could rate it as the least of all the advices. Yeah. I feel like it's all the way down there for me. It's uh, real bad. Bad, bad, so bad advice. Bad, bad, bad advice. Validating. <laughs> it is suggesting not only that anger has no place in the continuum of human emotion, <laughs> but also that we can just boop, replace it with 
happiness and therefore right. thou shalt. And <laughs> false. I detest this advice. It's extremely bad. Uh, raking it in extremely bad uh, woods. New categories today. New category. I love it. Beautiful. Extremely bad. Uh, Sess, what you got? I agree 1 million percent on that for sure. Yes. I think um, you can't ignore an emotion that exists. Like It is one thing to say, work on your anger. Try to manage your anger. Try to maybe even minimize it in some certain conditions. But to say to that we should be eliminating and that it's wasteful is not consistent with the human condition. So I think instead of promoting advice that isn't doable, it's about trying to promote really healthy messages, doable things, right? Um, so I don't support the message at all. I can appreciate the person's desire to maybe promote positivity, but that feels toxic. Um, so toxic. I love how you tried to end it trying with a little tiny uh, bow to help this person feel better, but don't worry, we're not going to tag them. Um, uh, <laughs> I just, I think anger serves a function too. Yes. It's on some level, it informs us. It tells us about where 100%. we are. And yeah, it can be motivating too. Anger can be a really, really good emotion. I feel like there's such gendered beliefs around how anger can happen. And I feel like women especially are told to swallow that anger. And I, that makes me mad. Yeah. It makes you angry. Um, angry category. And men are told that it's the only emotion that they can effectively uh, uh -huh. express. So it's listen, so we're apparently for everyone. Happiness or anger are the only two. Alas, as always. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on any of those social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.